My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Emil Kierkegaard. Uh, he is uh, a quantitatively minded person with diverse interests, um, an independent scientist, a uh, data analyst for hire, um, just a, a man of mystery in general, and uh, <laughs> someone who is, um, you know, if, if you type his, his name into your um, most favorite search engine, you might find some some spicy details uh, from his detractors. Obviously, this is stuff that, that has nothing actually to do with uh, Emil, so that's why I've, I've had him on, so he can uh, clear, clear the record. I mean, Emil, what, what, what are you? What do you do on this, on this earth? Well, I'm an international man of mystery, as you said. Uh, you may call me Austin Powers with this introduction. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm staring at my next movie. It's uh, not Goldmember, but the other uh, member. Jokes aside. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I'm very happy to be here, I guess. Um, by any reasonable definition, I, I qualify as subversive, except I'm not a communist anymore. Previously had long hair and uh, was reading too much Marxism.org. And these things that uh, that young dissidents do when when you're 17 and you're rebellious and you're like the adults are lying and you have to figure out how and maybe Marxism is the way and then later you're like hmm, famines are not good and <laughs> <laughs> yeah we all get to that point you know when you hit the famines you're like oh okay this could have been avoided. Hmm. Right. You read about the first famine. It's like, okay, this was World War II, like Nazis are to blame. Then there's a second famine and the third famine and the fourth famine. <laughs> like, maybe there's some pattern here. Even uh, Anyway, so eventually you give up on that. But you're like, no, I still want to fight for socialism. And you try you try hard of thinking about, okay, I'm going to be a cool socialist, not a straight communist, like not a Stalinist, right? You wouldn't defend Stalin, but you can still maybe be cool like a Trotskyist or some other obscure, uh, maybe the whatever the uh, Italian guy Gramsci or something. You can be slightly, slightly more obscure, and you you study going to these weird subcategories of Marxism. But eventually, you just kind of give up, and you're like, okay, okay, Marxism was uh, this was not a good idea. And uh, okay, so we're here. We're gonna um, we're gonna be subversive in a different direction, I guess. For sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So you're not a Marxist anymore. Uh, I'm not surprised that you you were, because I think everyone, you have to go. If you're a curious person and a semi-intellectual character, you need to go through that phase, you know, to, to harden your heart <laughs> to Marxism. Um, and then you come out the other end and you you came out in a, in a, in a very interesting uh, area. I guess you were interested in data analytics and you were kind of a, a data-oriented person and also a noticer of patterns, it seems. So, <laughs> oh, so what, what patterns? Patterns are bad. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the actually introduction was, they actually kind of came via this interest in this Marxist stuff because then um, I was interested in anti-religion stuff for like obvious teenage atheism stuff. But 
nevertheless, um, so I was reading, of course, uh, Richard Dawkins and this sort of thing. And the most interesting about Richard Dawkins wasn't his anti-theism uh, or atheism work. It was his uh, older biology books. And so he started reading like uh, The Selfish Gene and, and these kind of books, Extended Phenotype, and you go like, hmm. This is uh, some, so you get to this like social biology and you get to these like kind of woke critics. Okay, Dark Dawkins himself is considers himself left wing or whatever. He grew up in Africa or at least he was born in Africa, I think. And um, anyway, but you start reading about this, the self gene and then you get into the social biology stuff and you go like, hmm, this behavioral genetic stuff. So for things to evolve, things have to be heritable. And then once you, once you realize this, you realize uh, due to the, the selfish instrument of genes, essentially, you can put one and one together and you realize that social inequality must be heritable to some degree. Otherwise you could not really evolve these traits, intelligence and uh, conscious, you know, these kind of working work ethics and stuff, things that lie behind differences in, uh, in who gets ahead. These itself have to be heritable to some extent. And the conclusion is, is inevitable. Things that are not heritable cannot evolve. And <laughs> so, so you got into that and, but then I had like a massive detour. I was into, I got into like analytic philosophy for some years. And you, you know, these like extreme nerds who study formal logic. That's what yeah. I was studying. Right? Like they're, that's right. What is the most uh, obtuse or whatever, <laughs> not obtuse, but like the most uh, math-like uh, philosophy you could do. And so it was very interesting. This like modal logic's more complicated. Um, I haven't really been writing about this for, I don't know, half a decade, but it was kind of interesting back then. And um, the, the idea was, of course, we got to maximize rationality. So there's no changed current. It's just that we've, I've kind of swapped to a scientific rationality than this like autistic logician rationality where you go like, hmm, your argument can be formalized in this way. And no, no, it looks like an affirmative, affirming the consequent or whatever modal fallacy to me. And, um, but it was all in, in the interest of this, like this, like rationality mission where like we need to be more rational somehow. And uh, so I guess, you know, learning logic uh, is, seems a reasonable way to become more rational. Um, but I mean, it all comes down eventually to a scientific experiment. What if we were to take a bunch of philosophy students, we're going to divide them into two groups, we're going to teach some of them formal logic, we're going to teach the other kids, uh, you know, whatever it is they learn in philosophy class, and uh, some other stuff like Hegel. And uh, I guess later, we're going to check uh, if they, uh, we can do some kind of behavioral measure of of rationality, I guess, like how much student debt have you acquire, acquired, right? <laughs> this is sort of thing, acquiring tons of student debt for useless degree, that doesn't seem very rational. So I guess you should just start with the first semester, you learn formal logic, you're like, hmm, philosophy is stupid, then drop out. That's the power <laughs> move. <laughs> that wasn't exactly what I did, but it wasn't too far off either. Um, let me sip on this tea thing. No worries. <laughs> oh, it's really warm. And... Um, yeah, that was kind of like that. And it was only like later, I was like, I'm tired of philosophy. I'm going to study something more useful, which then happened to be linguistics. Uh, not very useful itself. Um, I think it, linguistics kind of is in the category of interesting but useless, um, which is better than some other academic fields, which are not even interesting and also useless. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, at least linguistics has some true stuff, and it's very good for like uh, like party uh, chats, you come to some academic conference and you see some random foreigners, you're like, oh, this word relates to that word. And then suddenly the conversation is going. So I guess it's kind of, um, it's kind of like a party trick, uh, without, uh, without actually doing magician stuff. Um, but the, the real reason up, was, yeah, right? the, the, what you ended up with is, uh, is <laughs> actually, I mean, 
to us. I guess I guess you can find uh, very spicy stuff in each of these disciplines, but but the uh, the, the final destination is actually interesting. <laughs> the final destination, yeah. I remember that movie from being uh, from being a youth. Um, yeah, but basically, the real reason for studying linguistics was actually just that um, when I was studying philosophy, I noticed that some classes have uh, what do you call this, like um, attendancy requirements, which is extremely annoying. And because I want to go up to some lecture and then listen to like an hour and a half of the same shit that you're supposed to read in a textbook. So this doesn't make any sense. Um, so I, I checked a bunch of uh, stuff that you could study at university, like specifically looking for something that does not have <laughs> a tendency requirements. And it just happens that linguistics apparently after what is after the first semester or something, oh, I cannot tell me exactly, but basically there was no tendency requirements. And so like, yep, I'm just never showing up for class literally and um, you just hand in the homework sometimes and uh, you get you get to go to the exam and the exam is usually just some like take home whatever uh, write 12 page on some like textbook topic it's really easy and um mm, this uh, the purpose of this was just like to maximize my free time so i could study what i wanted because i didn't really want to study linguistics that's uh, that much i mean i did read all the textbooks and so i do have a degree in linguistics but I really wanted to just study more um, on this, like my interest uh, at this time was like growing in the IQ stuff and behavioral genetics. And um, I was getting to the point where I, I just read all the, the kind of the easy to read review articles. So like the Linda Gottfriedson, like the Jensen stuff uh, to some extent. Uh, I didn't really like Rustin that much. I read the Richard Lynn stuff. He's also um, writing in simple language. Uh, but I was getting to a point where, like, I just need to dive deeper and have a deeper understanding. And to do that, I was, I needed to learn statistics. And um, so, uh, I mean, I just, uh, I picked up, what was it? I started out with, like, some data that I found on the uh, the Danish army. But kind of a, by coincidence, in, in Denmark, we have the, um, the army draft test. And so the, um, the men... When they turn eighteen-ish, they are called to Forsvart's Day, the the day of defense or something. You go in there, and uh, I think they get IQ tests and stuff. What actually happened with me is that I was um, they send you like a health questionnaire, and I said, "Yeah, I just got like so much psoriasis," and then they were like, "Fine, you're disqualified for physical reasons," and it's like a skill disease. So I don't know. I guess they they uh, they weren't they weren't really needing that many. I think it, around this time was uh, they had tons of uh, volunteers, mm -hmm. and uh, so the way it works is that basically you go up, you draw a number, and if your number is very low, they're gonna um, you have to go in and, and service in, in the army for three months or something. But because there's so many volunteers, they don't actually pull in any of the people they they can. They don't they because they only need a set number of whatever uh, people at, at a time, and there's so many volunteers that you actually didn't need to. And so they're also like just looking to disqualify anyone for any reason. I mean, why would you, if you have volunteers who want to go to the army, why would you check in people who don't want to go or claim to have some like physical ailment and you have to like force them or something like, why, why bother? Right. Anyway, so I've, at, at that time, I thought this was very clever and so on. But actually now it means I don't actually know how it is they did the, um, the actual recruits test, which is a bit annoying since I'm actually working later with this data. But I don't know. Uh, this was a... Uh, in hindsight a bit of a failure but um th this this first study in in 2013 we what i found was um that the danish army in 2005 or so they have conducted a study into the bias potential bias of the danish tests 
And the Danish, uh, the Danish draft test is uh, it has like four parts. One of which is uh, I think capillary, and there's another one is like this kind of like ravens like tests, but it's not exactly red ravens. It's like kind of like ravens figures, but instead of having figures, it's like with numbers and letters. So it's kind of like some kind of mix of this, um, and you're supposed to find the, the pattern or whatever in, in this kind of matrix setup of numbers and letters. And uh, so that, but there are, there are certain there are verbal uh, parts of it, and they're nonverbal. And what the military was looking at is that uh, they could see that the uh, the scores of the um, the immigrants were much lower, and I think these are mostly second generation immigrants because, as far as I can tell, you're only called to do uh, army service if you're a Danish citizen, and it's a bit difficult to become a Danish citizen fast enough to have it by year eighteen, age eighteen, right? So you would have to arrive either as a small child or more likely be born there to be a Danish citizen. No. Um, because like you have to become naturalized also. And if your parents are not naturalized and you are right there at age seven, it seems unlikely you, you will get it before 18. I'm not exactly sure, but I'm guessing it's mostly second generation. And, and um, so the army, they saw that the average IQs or um, IQ equivalents for the, um, for the immigrants, it was um, 87 or so. And uh, of course, uh, there were some like media people saying this is just because the test is biased and so on. And so the most obvious thing to test for is, of course, well, if it's some kind of language cultural bias, which is like sensible, if you some of these kids, they grew up with parents, they don't speak native Danish, they speak Arabic or, or Turkish or something, it's sensible that there might be some language bias. And uh, so they looked at the performance of, of these people on the, uh, the verbal part and the nonverbal part. And of course, if there's a language cultural bias, then the score should be relatively higher on the nonverbal part. Uh, but this just wasn't the case. Like as they, they showed, it's that these four subtests, they have more or less the same the same gap size. Uh, it might, okay, it might be like one IQ less or whatever on the other one, but that could be due to ability tilts that, that differ by group. It's a bit... Uh, anyway, so the army essentially uh, wrote a um, a report about this the uh, somewhere. And um, and it was I found this by just coincidence one day. And uh, in, in the interesting is that in the appendix, there was... The, uh, the distribution of scores by each group, the, the immigrant group and the Danish group. And so actually, by having the table of data, you can actually recreate the data set that they had. Uh, only the total scores, unfortunately, not the um, each uh, each of the four subtests. But still, you, you had something to play with. You can you could actually plot the data, which they hadn't done. And so I downloaded this data. I recreated it and like started doing my, my science career in Excel, as everybody is, uh, starts at. And um, I was... Um, I was interested here because, of course, the the IQ is was uh, the mean was uh, I think eighty seven, but which mean would you expect here? You would um, you'd actually expect it to be a weighted average of the immigrant uh, composition, and uh, at this point, I'd already been familiar with like Richard Lynn's work, and so I knew that you had the um, in two thousand twelve. That's when the other the Richard Lynn's uh, the third I think of these national IQ books came up: Intelligence and Unifying Construct. Uh, for the social science, very apt title. And um, so that one had all the IQs for the countries, some of which were estimated based on neighbors, but you know there were some kind of estimates and uh, some kind of estimate is better than no estimate as they say in science. And um, so what you could do is that you could look up the Danish population data for, uh, for groups in this, you could look up like men aged uh, 18 to 20 or so. These are likely people who, who are taking this draft army test and you can look by country of origin in Denmark, and our statistics are quite good. They don't just provide citizenship data, but also country of origin data. 
Um, so you can actually see, despite some of these people having uh, Danish oil, they should have Danish citizenship. You can also see their actual country of origin, as in the mother's country of origin, or will follow the mother. And uh, I mean, usually the husband will be from the same place, but but not always. But so they they're just following the mother for whatever reason. And um, so what you can get is you can get say the number of this. I think the group was the non-Western immigrants. They Western once they had added to the. Um, to the Danes. And uh, so you could get them when Western, the non-Western ones, you can say, okay, it's 15% Turkish. It's, you know, 5% Syrian. It's 4% whatever. And you can look up the IQs of these and you just take a weighted mean. That's the expected IQ you'd expect here. If there was like no environmental gain, it's just like straight, whatever it is, the origin IQs are. And um, once you do this math, um, that you can actually do in Excel. And uh, I, I got the number, uh, I think the, the number was uh, the estimate of the IQ, what it should be was what it was 86 or something. It was like mm-hmm. one IQ off the actual number. And I'm, I was like, whoa, this uh, <laughs> this this accuracy was unexpected. Um, I was expecting it to maybe like be like five off or something. I mean, after all, it is a crude method. When you're doing this, you're assuming that everybody's representative of their country. That's what to to make, to get this number to actually hit. You have to assume no true environmental gains, no uh, immigrant selection on, on average. Like they can't be more selected on average. And uh, I mean, okay, some of them can be better selected, some of them worse selected, and they will balance out if you're lucky. But that really depends on on which country is the large uh, source of immigration. And um, in Denmark, this is the Turks. Uh, as I I think this is uh, the largest one. Uh, it used to be like Swedes and Germans, but of course now we've uh, We've decided to open the gates to uh, our guest worker program in the 60s. Uh, Germans also had that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting that you kind of had to stumble upon a data set. And I guess, you know, you've also had, in a way, learned about this intelligence research, you know, about Lin's work, Jensen Rushton, through back channels in a way. This is not something that was handed to you at university. <laughs> so oh, you kind not. of retconned your way to uh to these results and had to had to essentially do the math yourself to to have uh revelations of, of this nature. Um, yeah. yeah it's 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 pretty surprised me. So I think kind of the, the 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 weird thing in this space is that there is some science. There was some science up to this point, but there is not much science in the mainstream of, uh, you know, of current day academia. So this type of research is not really done, except for, you know, older data sets. For example, in in Denmark, do they still collect uh, like data with that level of granularity uh, related to to heritage? Uh, So could you find a data set that's relevant the same today? Um, I mean, this data set... um they don't normally publish the army data, but actually Denmark were extremely uh, liberal uh, in the European sense, liberal, with uh, with data release. So as a matter of fact, you can just make a Freedom Information Act to the army and say, like, look, I want the average IQ of the of the immigrants or whatever, and they're gonna give it to you, right? They're gonna give it to you. I also applied for like the average average IQs by commune. Like, there's a hundred communes in Denmark, and there's like there's like some like. One day I got like some call from some like, yeah, I'm like a sergeant working in the psychology test division. Uh, you've requested some data. And like, that's true. Indeed, I would like the means by commune. And he's like, all right, I'll look into it. And like three days later, I got like some big spreadsheet that had the averages and stuff. So actually, it's surprisingly easy to get a lot of this stuff. It's just that no one asks uh, because no one really wants to do this work. Um, 
I mean, after all, if you're thinking from a, who is it that wants to do data analysis like this? Who's interested in science to the point of wanting to doing it themselves? It's mostly academics and then a few like weirdos like me. And so the academics, these are the people who actually get paid to do this sort of thing. And you have, uh, typically, this would be the psychologists, right? These are the people who are supposed to study this stuff. But psychologists, if you've ever actually read what it is, psychologists normally work, it's mostly like social psychology and personality psychology and like this like uh, psychotherapy stuff, uh, kind of like bordering psychiatry. There's very few people who are working in intelligence research uh, uh, or, or behavioral genetics. I mean, behavioral genetics is, is definitely more, I would say, more popular uh, these days because you can do behavioral genetics studies of a lot of stuff that isn't that controversial. Like no one is going to bark if you do uh, uh, some, uh, some twin study and you figure out, hey, it turns out height is highly heritable. And we've proved this in 17 different ways. And everybody's like, yeah, duh. And uh, <laughs> then it's only later when you, you start poking, what if, what if obesity is heritable too? Then you start getting like, then people start complaining, no, no, that's about what you eat. I know a guy who lost 20 kilos, blah, blah, blah. But of course, if you look on average, uh, I think most people are still going to agree that, yeah, it's quite obvious that, that BMI or obesity or something, okay, you get the bodybuilder people, no, BMI doesn't work. Like, you, need to, you need to have the fat percentage and uh, the height waist uh, ratio or whatever. There's a bunch of these um, uh, people. and uh, But nevertheless, if you do some, some actual family studies of these, they turn out to be highly heritable and not many people are going to complain that too much. And they're going to say, okay, it's not just heritable. It has something to do with whatever food it is you had in your home growing up and, and this sort of thing. Okay. You, you're just going to concede that uh, even if the data actually usually does not support that when you look at actually uh, like uh, twin studies of like BMI and stuff, usually the, uh, the family environment goes to near zero. So, so this whole idea of like parents having a large effect on obesity of the children, that seems to be just false uh, at least. So that's the one people won't swallow. But if you, if you just actually going to ignore that one and say, yeah, parents are important, blah, blah, blah then you can essentially study, uh, behavioral genetics without getting uh, harassed too much these days that is right um, back in the 70s uh, or the 60s that it was a lot harder to study uh, twin studies and stuff there was a lot of these like marxist uh, people like the um, leon camin and uh, richard levantine who died recently and there's a bunch of these people but nowadays these these this old guard of this uh this like marxist uh, communist uh, harass types They've, they've largely died out or, or given up. And uh, so but nowadays, who's really going to attack you if you, do a, if you do a twin study on IQ? Uh, essentially no one, right? It's, it's been normalized. And um, there is that, um, that uh, socialist historian, what is this guy? He, he wrote a book, uh, he, Aaron Panofsky. He wrote a book, Misbehaving Science. Because, of course, if you're thinking of social science from like a left-wing historian perspective, you're like, yeah, most, so, most social science is basically far left on average, but there's like these two sore thumbs. The two sore thumbs are intelligence research and behavioral genetics, and these turn out to be the same people. <laughs> so you're like basically from a standard social science perspective, these people are extremely far right because they're not far left like yourself uh, in, 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 as a historian or, or uh, a social psychologist or something. And um, so if you're kind of living in the bubble of being a researcher in social psychology, and you're like, yeah, we need to uh, against extremism and so on. And you don't, we haven't really realized that you're the extremist yet. Uh, then basically, it is true that the IQ researchers and the uh, the behavioral geneticists they're essentially far right from the perspective of an average social scientist. And and so in that sense, from his perspective, they are misbehaving science. And he he was kind of chronicling the 
the history of, uh, of, of these fields kind of making their way. And nowadays, of course, we have Plomin, we have Ian Deary, these, these people, they're, they're playing, they came out starting to do their work in the 70s or early 80s. And they were like, yeah, we, we saw what happened to like Jensen talking about the race stuff. We're just like never going to talk about the race stuff, basically. Like that's what Plomin decided. Right? Plomin, he played his hand. He played for the long game. Plomin and Iron Deary, they were like, yep, I'm just going to never talk about race stuff. I'm just going to talk solely about differences within like white people in Western countries. And I'm gonna, just going to keep getting more and more data, ruling out every, uh, every potential confound they can think of. More data sets, you know, get genomics started once uh, you hit the 2000s and you start doing the first uh, actual genetic study or actual uh, gene studies, you know, the candidate gene stuff that didn't work. But um, at least they were trying to push in this direction. Um, and so they've, they've actually succeeded in, in normalizing behavioral genetics. Now, behavioral genetics departments, you have those at many, uh, many quite decent universities, you even <laughs> University of Minnesota and uh, Texas, Austin and um Colorado, the, these are the, I think, the twin hubs, but also like in the UK, uh, Plowman, he moved to UK later, uh, King's College or whatever, and he has the, the TED sample, the twin early development study or something, and has like, they got like public funding for, what is it, 20,000, 10,000 twins, something in, in this area, and the later, like, genotype. And so, essentially, behavioral genetics is essentially totally mainstreamed, and uh, intelligence research is also very mainstream as long as you don't talk about race differences or like sex differences. But if you just want to say, like, yeah, it turns out people who are racist are dumber, then, I mean, then IQ is totally valid, will box.com <laughs> say, right? <laughs> as long as the conclusion go in the right direction, uh, that's kind of like how, how humans work. Um, and scientists are really not immune from these, like, common biases that other humans have. I think, um, I mean, it, to some extent, maybe they're, they're, they may even be more susceptible to them. These, these ideologue academics, they seem to be extremely susceptible to these, these kind of mental fads or or fashion of the mind, as some have called this stuff. Um, yeah, so, but after this, so we, we've kind of had this weird, um, this kind of strange historical situation where uh, the stuff that Arthur Jensen was talking about in the 60s, he was talking about everything at once. Like, because at that time, like, essentially nothing was agreed upon. Like, people don't, uh, they don't really accept that general intelligence, G-factor stuff, that's a thing. So you have to establish that. You have to establish that it's actually measuring something that isn't just like uh, education of the parents, something like this. You have to rule out all these things. You can look at uh, sibling studies. That's what they were studying, doing back then. They were interested in, in social mobility. And uh, it's it's obvious that if you have families where you have multiple children, you can measure uh, all of the children and you can see, I mean, this time back then women were not really doing a lot of social mobility, but okay, you measure all the sons in, in families with more sons and you check if the sons, uh, higher IQs are, are, are making their way up relative to the, the other sons or uh, what they also looked at was uh, fathers versus sons so they had the iqs of the fathers and the sons and you checked all right so the sons with higher iqs they, they tend to move up uh, social mobility wise and the father or the sons with lower iq than the parents and then the father they tend to move down that's what some of these early studies showed and these things you cannot just explain from a, like a, a social background model there's there's no way to explain this kind of uh, within family difference and so these these, these data were, were well known, but not well studied because some of these early studies was like 100 people or whatever. Okay. And maybe the study was done by Cyril Bird and later like people thought his, his data was bullshit. Nowadays, we're like, it seems that his data wasn't bullshit, but he was kind of inaccurate in his reporting. 
yeah, so the uh, the Archer Jensen stuff, he was he was talking about the everything at once in the in the late uh, in the late sixties and the early seventies, and like every every point was under debate, right? No one would accept the G factor. They wouldn't accept this family stuff. The t- twin studies were not accepted. Adoption studies were not accepted. Um, essentially, nothing was accepted. Like even if you could accept some of them, you, they would all say like the tests are definitely biased and, and, and so on. And so um, you, had, you, you had to really fight for everything. And Jensen was like, he was just like the supreme artist. Like, indeed, I will battle every single battle at once since I have this much mental power, more, more than the critics. And uh, But this this wasn't really a winning strategy because that just kind of made him look... Because, of course, every time you do this sort of thing, the critics, they're not going to focus on you like solid work. They're going to say, racist professor, racist professor, just going to chant this over and over, right? That's essentially what happened. And they're disrupting him and they sent bomb threats Threats uh, and like he he had to evacuate his family, leaving some like safe home because the police were like, yeah, we're actually unable to keep you safe on Berkeley campus. And uh, there was like a, what do you call this plainclothes uh, policeman guarding him and opening his letters. Anyway, I mean that that stuff was was the that's how you get things in the in sixties. And um, so after this, uh, these these other researchers that kind of that came that came after this, they they knew about the Jensen and the. Um, Rushton wasn't there yet, but the Isink, he he also got similar treatment in, in the UK. Uh, and E.O. Wilson, I think, also got uh, mistreated in the 70s. And so so we, we, you get these characters like Plowman and Iron Deer, and they come in and say, yep, this uh, this is the most toxic part. We're just going to ignore that and basically never say anything about it. And we may privately agree or disagree. That doesn't matter. I'm sure these people are heritarians. But... Um, but uh, publicly, basically, they said nothing, and they're just like they worked their way on establishing things from the base up. They were like, uh, essentially, the psychometricians had already, at, by this point, really uh, nailed down the IQ stuff. Jensen himself had had written the eight hundred page tome uh, bias in mental testing, which is like basically killed all opposition. And um, there were some other people who did some reviews after this book, but they just came to the same conclusion. There was one was one paper interesting called. Uh, bias in mental testing since bias in mental testing the book and it was like yeah basically new studies have come to the exact same conclusion this this is a waste of time <laughs> like there's nothing wrong with this test once you're studying like natives versus natives um, and um, and the other people they were like yeah we're just gonna more twins more adoptions and just like churn out papers that closing the holes like if you think like the, the typical complaints for twin studies will be the, um, the equal environments assumption, which is that where you're assuming in the typical study that the the uh, the, the relevant environment of the monozygotic twins, the one X twins, the identical twins, uh, that they are not more similar than the um, than for the two X twins. And uh, anyone who knows identical twins knows that these people are so similar looking and even sounding that. You are actually mixing them up most of the time, even if you you can tell the difference. But often you're just like forgetting it in conversation because they're just too difficult to tell apart or by by a snap. And you like find yourself talking to one of them, and then later you're like, "Did I talk to you or your brother?" Am I unable to remember <laughs> which of you it was? Uh, and you kind of just classify them mentally as kind of not exactly one person, but also not exactly two distinct persons. Um, and anyway, so it's it's there was a lot of cases of parenting where like parents would literally put them in the same clothing, and you. These, you get these like baby photos of like two identical twins with, with the same blue pajamas or whatever, and and so it's, it stands to reason that these, their environment is more similar than the environment of the, uh, the diazygotic ones, which are essentially just same age uh, same age siblings. Uh, okay, they may even be different sexes, but usually you compare the same sex ones, right? Um, 
And so this, it stands to reason this is not is not logical to just assume this. But it, I mean, so it is true that it is not uh, that the environments are not the same. They're, they are more similar for the uh, the monosygotic ones. But the, the the catch is not that the model doesn't really assume that the environments are the same overall. It assumes that the environments that are relevant for the trait you're studying are the same. And so it may be that parents indeed put uh, put siblings in more or these like the monozygotic twins. They put them more in like blue pajamas together and this sort of thing. But okay, it turns out that putting being put in blue pajamas that doesn't actually affect your adult IQ. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This environment is more similar because these things don't have any even trivial impacts immediately or lasting impact on adult IQ or adult obesity. These things don't matter. Um, and you, you also get the second thing is that, I mean, there is a reason also that parents treat them more similarly. And that is because they're more genetically similar. And uh, as, as, um, as maybe you will, you'll find out, is the typical, the typical saying goes that you get one child and like, yeah, parenting, we just got to do the same thing. You get a second child, like, I'm just going to do the same parenting again. And it turns out like the second child will not react the same way the first child did. And so the parents is like, hmm, this... Uh, Maybe there's some difference because the difference is not coming from me, but you have to adopt the parenting to the different children and you get into the say the, the typical fights when you, you have siblings, like that's unfair, different rules for one child and the other. And if they're also different age, then it's just endless conflict. If you had siblings, you, you, you know this from your own childhood. And I definitely had some, uh, some <laughs> quarrels with my brother who's uh, yeah, had a brother or have a brother. And um, yeah. But this is very, very counterintuitive, isn't it? Like, I think like, most parents will not, they you just instinctively cannot accept the fact that um, their Im- involvement in their child's life isn't the most crucial thing that they can do, that they can't really mold the child according to their, um, I don't know, to their idea of what the child should be, that it's not just like a blank slate that you get. And then um, it, in, in a way, because I know the, the research on the subject, it feels kind of, I feel a bit of a relief that, you know, um, Maybe I can't mold much, but I also can't really destroy the child with me. Maybe, I don't know, doing <laughs> right. one faux pas one day or something like that. He might still blame me because that's the way it works. But it doesn't. <laughs> it means that, you know, there's still, um, there's, there's there are bigger forces at work than, than just what I can do. Um, but in terms of, in terms of like the nature versus nurture debate, if, if I were like a, a data curious, or at least, you know, a data savvy social scientist in the year 2021, um, would I, would I have enough information at my disposal to, to decisively understand the difference between nature and nurture? Like, is there enough publicly available data that I could, um, find for myself to, to, to see this, this result? Because it seems to me like everywhere I look, um, there's like, now because I'm a parent, I get all of these, um, promotions for you know baby einstein all of these nurture stu- nurture things and you know everywhere oh, I, look, I just think that's like a genetic confounding in there every program that i see it's like oh people say that you know children who who understand who um, pass algebra one are five times more likely to finish college and i'm like yeah of course they are it's not because they pass algebra one because you did something magic to them to pass algebra one they would have passed algebra one anyway <laughs> so it's just right. I, don't, I don't know it's um it's kind of weird. So would, would someone, do these people have access to this data? Do they know about this? Like, no, 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 no. So there's a, this open science movement that essentially is about making science cool. Like it was in the late 1800s, uh, back when it was mostly kind of this like gentlemen's 
agreement, like a bunch of autistic rich, rich people like Galton and this kind of, uh, and uh, so that's back then, I think they were more open to sharing data. And, uh, but as science kind of got more institutionalized, people were like also got like more protective of their own data sets. And uh, if you are just an average person, you, you basically cannot get a lot of these twin data sets. They're, they're mostly hidden. Uh, and uh, even the ones that are not exactly hidden or they're not, well, what should we say? There are some data sets you can only get by application and application is only open to like actual university researchers. So I cannot get these. And But there are some other ones that are technically public, but they're not put on some website that says like with a bit advertisement, open data, download here. That's not how it works. Um, you have to go to some extremely obscure part of their like uh, website and that's where you're going to find some of this uh, point, uh, point in fact, is the uh, the TED sample I mentioned in the UK with the, I, I cannot remember, if, I think it's 10,000 uh, pairs of t- twins. So that data set, um, that data set actually is partially public. There's some studies from the 2010s, I, I think, where they, this was when they were still like kids, like age nine or and below. And um, so there, there are some studies there where they actually uh, had the item data from some of this IQ stuff and some other stuff. Uh, measured, I think maybe height and, and so on. And the, this data set is actually public. You can find it on the website. We have to find this like TED's website. You have to go to some like thing, like browse through the website and some like obscure part. You can download the supplements to some of these early papers and that's where you can get some of this data. But if you if you were not paying a lot of attention, you'd never find this. And I only found it uh, some some years later. And I I, I, re- I emailed some of these features. I'm like, yeah, so why are you going to, update the public version and they're like nah we're actually never updating it again so so essentially getting large twin studies uh the data sets themselves to play with you can't really do that uh the best you can you can really do is you can download the uh, the nlsy and samples so this is the national longitudinal study of youth and uh, that's uh, there's multiple versions of this so the first version is the one from uh 1979 that's the one the bell curve was based on that what this data set is completely public you can just go to the website, uh, the NLSI investigator or something, and you just say, like, I, I want to search for variables. I want these. There's, like, I don't know, 20,000 variables. And you um, you say, I want these 100 variables. You just download a file, and you can open that in whatever stats program you want to do, if, even, even if it's Excel. And um, there's a follow-up version. This After 20 years later, they decided that we're going to do the study again. And so there's a... The, the National Longitudinal Study of Use copy study from uh, 97. And that one is also public. So you can just go down on that one. It's equally public to the first one. And it has almost all the same variables um, as the, the one that the bell curve was based on. And there is also a, um, a follow-up study of the children born to the mothers in the first study. Children of this. Anyway, so essentially these, these studies are free and they have these like family links. You can figure out who's related. And there are, there are twins in this study, and there's also siblings and half-siblings and cousins and even some half-cousins and these kind of things. But they're just like, they're not there in large enough numbers for you to really do kind of a kick-ass study. And that's why not many people are using these, because academics know about this data set, but they don't use them much because they're not strong enough to be used like this. And I, I do think it is a pity that there's not more actual open twin studies uh, of, of anything it is you want. There doesn't seem to be any particular reason this, this data shouldn't be just public. Um, to, to give one example, there, there is the, um, an old public study, uh, what is it, the, um, the Project Talent, 
And it's from 1960, a really long time ago. So these people are, are dying now because I, I think they studied kids in high school back then. So I guess they were uh, 15 to 20, or I don't know exactly what high school age is in the U.S., but let's say uh, 15 to 20 uh, or maybe 18. And um, judging from American movies, they can't drink. So I guess they're uh, below 21. Um, this data set is public. You can download it, but the follow-up surveys from this are not public. And so this, because this data set has 400,000 people, there's going to be twins in there, uh, in, in hundreds or maybe even thousands of them. Um, and But they just have never released the follow-up waves. They're just not public. Again, you have to apply through some university somewhere. Um, it's not this, this field has not really seen the, the open data kind of um, movement that, that it should have seen. That's, I think actually that is very disappointing because I'm a, uh, somewhat of an open science performer myself, and uh, so <laughs> uh, to uh, so I would like to to open this more up. And so actually, when I found that the TED's data set, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna block this data set, so more people are gonna know about it because it's it is the largest I think public twin study. Even if it's, it's somewhat reduced in the amount of variables, it still has a lot of variables. Uh, and I think there was even the um, item level data on like vocabulary or something that was very interesting. I actually meant to like look into that later. I just never did it because, you know, there's a, there's a lot of studies to do once you get started. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so like to, to basically return to your question, the answer is no, because you cannot get a lot of these uh, open family-based data with twins or siblings, or cousins or half-siblings or adoptees. These data sets are basically usually closed access. You have to collaborate with some academic. Okay, let's say you're already data savvy enough that you have enough skills that you could email some academic in your field and say, Look, I wanna I wanna work with you guys on this stuff. Can you give me some data and I'll uh, sign some agreement to keep it private or whatever? Then then maybe you, you could get started, but probably what's gonna happen is that this professor is gonna say, yeah, why don't you just apply and be my PhD student? And if you're already having an, a different career, maybe you're an engineer or something, and you already kind of done that, and you're like 35 and like you kind of you're interested in data, but you don't want to go back to academia to study some like psychology or something that you cannot even get into. Like essentially your access to data is going to be very limited. And if we go more, you want to say, I see all these cool genetic studies. How do I get some genetic data? So I too can calculate polygenic scores for like this and that group or, or for people whose parents are wealthy and people whose parents are not wealthy and so on. And the answer is basically you cannot do that at all, that there is not a single, um, public genomic data set that I know of that has has these other variables. What you can find in the genomics is you can find some data sets and only a few of them that are public, but they don't really have any phenotypes. They don't have like measures of height, intelligence. What you usually have is like they will have age, sex, and location. So you're like, okay, this is some Gambians from this area. I mean, you don't really need to know the sex from the phenotype, right? Because when you open the genetic data, you can see which sex it is anyway. Like, is there data from the Y chromosome or no, right? This is this is the easiest one. And so you already know the sex. Okay, the age you don't know, but since you don't have any other phenotypes, you can't really do anything with the study. All you can really do is compute polygenic scores and compare them across these like regions, like like the Vita Piffer is doing. Uh, that's that's essentially the only kind of uh, kind of a naughty study you could do with this and you can't there's no twins or anything so you can't really con convince yourself of anything in this area and i think this is this is also sad why, why is this data not public um there were some people early on um the open snip projects they were like um we're gonna pay people volunteers we're gonna pay for that 23 me on the condition that they publish their own data and so they were like we got some initial funding and, and actually i'm in this beta pool 
because um, they were like, anyone can apply to be part of this open data set on the condition that you uh, you share the data afterwards and you answer like the questionnaire or whatever. And I'm like, eventually everybody's going to have their uh, genomes public anyway. So I'm just, I'm totally fine with doing this. Rasim Khan, you already talked to him. He was he was also doing this. I think he was the first person what is it, to publish the genome of uh, a pre-born. Uh, not, I think that he was a very interesting um, first there, but... Um, so yeah, uh, this data set you can download, but it turns out it's like, oh, there's like 400 people and most of them haven't taken the same phenotypes. So that's the biggest kind of data set I know of you can download that has some kind of phenotype and it's basically useless for, for scientific research. That's why I know what is really using it. Um, it's, it's, very, it's a bit strange uh, that's, but I think it's because of these like privacy regulations that these became like very strong over time. And so it's obvious uh, you saw this with the golden gate killer or whatever these like people that get identified from this how how do people identify them well it turns out some like distant family members are updating are uploading their genomic data to some of these like ancestry portals um the jet match uh, the ged match is one of these and there's yeah what is it my heritage and some of these websites where you like you can use this to find extended family and the police is like, you know that meme with the African guy on the tree? Yeah, that's the, what the police are doing. <laughs> that's that's what they're doing. And they're like, yeah, we're going to wait for a sufficient amount of uh, second cousins of criminals to uh, to upload their data. And we're just going to go there and we're going to team up with the whoever, um, Orthram or whatever, that company that helps doing this forensic genomics. And we're going we're gonna to find a bunch of these, okay, now criminals in their 80s or whatever. So, okay, from an actual public justice perspective, this is basically useless because you're spending an extreme amount of resources tracking down some old guy who killed someone like 50 years ago. You're not really like no one, you're not preventing any future crimes like this. You're, you're, you're saying justice always comes at some point. Uh, and uh, well, in, in, for some of them anyway. And, um, but that's still not, uh, it's still not something to like to answer your question. Essentially the answer is no, because these data sets are, are hidden away and you have to be good friends with an academic and they may even need to, to maybe violate some like institutional policy or or sign you in as a, as like an unpaid research volunteer or something, then then they are allowed to share some data sets with you. So it's it's a bit unfortunate uh, that that this is uh, this is not the case uh, that people could uh, participate more. But uh, I guess that we still have some uh, some ways to make with the um, with the uh, the open science movement in in this area. Yeah, in in terms of of the data that you have seen. Um, if you could, if you could provide an estimate, this is very, very loose. But um, in in your estimation, how much could we attribute to to heritability, and how much could we attribute to kind of shared environment and and, and non shared environment? So, is there kind of a consensus on 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 that, or is that also kind of a people would not I mean, discuss it. it depends on trade, right? And age, and in many many trades, what you find is that the the heritability goes up with age. And the, I mean, it stands to reason that if you're living with your parents and you're a minor and you might be like five years old, well, you don't have a lot of influence over whatever your daily uh, your daily rhythm is going to be. Like they're going to put you to school. You're not going to have much influence there. You're going to go to preschool. If you don't like your classmates, well, tough luck. Uh, maybe if you complain for a few years, they're going to give you a different class or maybe try a different school. But essentially, you don't have that much power as like a seven-year-old, and so you're uh, you're under the the thumb of the of your parents to a very large extent, and that's essentially what you find with many of these uh, the studies of younger children is that you find that the family rearing environment, that's the shared environment, it, it has 
had a large effect on say psychi- psychiatric um psychiatric outcomes like you can have like depressed kids and if you interview these with like some psychotherapist or a school psychologist or something and, and you do some kind of study uh, you you will find that there's a, a substantial effect of the family environment now the family environment uh, it's a shared environment it's not parent to child per se it can also be child to parent and sibling to sibling so the twin studies actually cannot tell which of these it is. It, it only tells you it has something to do with living in the same household with the with siblings and with your parents. And of course, um, you, you can look, uh, if you're doing the standard twin study, you can't look at, at say, households that only have one child because you need, you know, multiple, at least at least a, at least a pair of twins in a family to, for this family to be part of the study. Um, but so if, if you want to talk about height or something, you can do a lot of different studies. Uh, there are lots of uh, twin studies of height and so on. You can look at like physician measured height, which is somewhat more reliable and less biased than than self-reported height. Uh, like if you go on a dating site or whatever, you can see that the the height uh, for men is it's a bit a bit inaccurate. Sometimes the the women will uh, will under exaggerate their height too. Like if you're a very tall woman, you're like maybe 180 isn't the one number I want to put on Twitter. Maybe, maybe I'm only 175 or so because uh, it makes the dating pool a lot better. Right. And, uh, and the men, if you're like a man who's like 170, I'm like, I'm, I feel very bad for you, but there's, there's just not much to do because essentially once you're, uh, once you're, once you're born, your the height is, is so highly heritable. There's no known intervention like food or whatever you can do to increase your height. Like that's just uh, okay. That is not exactly true. If you have like growth, uh, stunting, you can they they give they could give you uh, growth hormones. I'm not exactly sure how well this works. I just remember from my own schooling there was there was some guy who was underdeveloped or whatever. He was he was on this growth hormone. I'm not sure how much it works. Okay, so there there is one intervention you you can do with height, but essentially if you're not actually stunted or something, giving growth hormone to just average developing to kill it. I'm not sure how well this will work, and I think there are some um, some detrimental effects of this. Um, even, even cows, like we, we know in farming, we give them growth hormone and there are a lot of people are complaining about this because it gives you like muscle pains and shit. Uh, and so, so maybe, maybe, maybe that isn't the best. So, but height, essentially, if you do a large study of height, you're going to find it's more than 90% due to uh, genetics. And, uh, to, for those who are wondering if you know what a correlation is to, to, to see the effect size of the genetics, what you have to do is take the square root of, of 90%. And so the square root of 0.9 is going to be like 9.5 or something. So what this really means is that if you knew the genetic potential of a person, you could correlate this with the, the future height. The correlation would be 9.5. It's essentially it's essentially a straight line on a plot. That That's how good uh, the genetic causation is for height. I don't think many people are really doubting this outside of like wartime famine or, you know, a happy communist experiment. And uh, aside from these, then essentially there's not much you can do with height there. You just have to select a, t- a taller partner, I guess. Or I mean, now you can do embryo selection and uh, the, the predictor models for height are really good. Um, so, so that one, if you were if you were a parent, you're like, both the, the husband and the wife are like, yeah, we're maybe not the tallest or, or maybe you are too tall and you're like, yeah, unhappy to have a daughter who's like 185. You could go like... Um, Indeed, I want to spend, you know, uh, 30,000 American dollars, uh, you know, uh, improving the odds of this child. Certainly, if you're a rich parent, this may be worth it for you, right? If, if this is the, the biggest problem you think you can actually do something about and you already have millions in your bank account, I mean, why not? Why not? 
uh, I think you should definitely do that. And um, I have some company or I am in, in uh, what is it called in contact with a company that, that will help do this with the current technology uh, for those who are interested. But uh, if you want to talk about more other stuff, uh, I had a I had a post the other day on my uh, my Substack. I'm also Substack maxing, and um, to get those to get those monies, you gotta get some more research money. And um, I was one uh, one thing that is uh, is uh, about the behavioral genetics that they they actually ironically love to underestimate uh, genetics. And if you read like books like The Blueprint by by Robert Plowman, he's like, yeah, it turns out everything is basically 50% heritable and 50% mostly not like family environment. It's just like kind of random or, or, or non-shared environment, which could be like you were a very special teacher, but probably not since all the teacher studies say no. And uh, uh and so, so, but he's really under exaggerating things. But I think that's because he's he's still in this mindset where like behavioral genetics needs to be more mainstreamed. And so, by doing this, he he's like he's playing a weaker hand on purpose uh, to, uh, to to not be so um, attacked so much. If you come out and say, yeah, intelligence is just half genetics, personality is half genetics. The other part is like uh, you know your Nick environment or something. It's a lot easier model uh, to sell than if you come out and say. Yeah, it looks to be like it's more like 80%, maybe even 90% if you measure it particularly well. Like every social intervention we've tried basically has failed. Uh, the only kind of thing you can look at is that there's this one meta-analysis by Stuart Ritchie about the education and IQ. And even this one is somewhat doubtful because the ages involved are somewhat uh, somewhat on the low side. A lot of these are kids. And, you know, as we talked about, the uh, for children, there's there's more environmental impacts and it kind of fizzles out for adults later when they kind of create their own environment they move out they get the job they found some like girlfriend or a husband or whatever that's kind of similar to themselves like genetically speaking for for these traits and they kind of make their own kind of environment there and now uh, they're no longer on the effect of the you know the parenting like 20 years ago and so if plowman were to go out and say this sort of thing then his his message uh, essentially is a message in many left-wing people in socialist perspective it's a message of no hope right the, the message is there is no hope for your social interventions. Like this stuff does not work. And like we've spent like, I don't know how many billions of money on this and it just still, still won't work. I mean, clearly if you go and read the think tanks of, of socialist organization stuff, they're like, they're going to give you hundreds and hundreds of studies saying that this definitely works. As you were saying, like you can, you can, you can take that the Mozart study or whatever, like, oh, it's published in nature or science. So it must be true. It's like totally never replicated. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, the question's always like, okay, we know that these people that have, you know, this, you know, intelligence correlated, uh, you know, a- accomplishment go on to do this other thing that's intelligence correlated. So it's, <laughs> this is all, right. all of social science, which I'm yeah, like. And, and it turns out the smarter kids and people who, basically kids who do better in life in any sense of the word tend to have parents that are higher educated. That's like, that's the basis of most social sciences, the most obvious finding ever. And essentially, social science has not, the mainstream social science, aside from behavioral genetic stuff, has not really made much progress since, you know, um, since the early 1920s or whatever. They're like, yeah, back then we're like, they did the first family studies. They're like, whoa, rich parents have like kids that do better in school. It must be because, you know, the schoolings need better funding. So now we've instituted all these projects to equalize the schooling. And like this correlation didn't really change or whatever. Okay, it must be something more subtle. It must be because, uh, you know, black kids are going to bad schools, white kids. So what are we gonna do? we're going to force them to mix up by like bossing them around. This stuff doesn't work either. What's the next thing we're going to try? Okay, we need to we need to equalize uh, 
like we need to standardize teachers' curriculums. Let's ban homeschooling, right? We did all this stuff. Like these gaps did not go away. Like the the gaps for the rich and the the, the children who grew up rich and the ones who grew up poor, they're like they're basically the same as they were in the 1920s when we started measuring these. There are some economists who did a study like this where they they um, they avoided the typical problem of many of these studies. As you were saying, like um, earlier, like you can do these studies. We can say like. Um, Children who have uh, college-educated parents, they are doing this X well. And in the 1950s, this was a different number. It must be meaning that college is getting more important or getting less important either way. Uh, but it turns out this is just bullshit. It's because the distribution of, of who, how many people have college has changed. So now college is a lot less, it is a lot less uh, selective than it used to be. So comparing um, college or not, like the, the college premium on income that you have above the non-college people, that 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 value is now very small because the average college graduate now has an IQ of 107 or something, especially in the US where they're really like rolling out. Everybody has got a fucking associate's degree. And that that's the real reason these numbers over time are changing. But what the economist people were doing is that they're going to say, uh, we're going to uh, avoid this, like um, this, this, these categories of education, the college and the high school and the below high school and whatever. They're going to say, we're going to look at the kids whose parents were in the 19th, uh, 19th centile for income and the, the kids uh, whose parents were in the 10th centile. Because these numbers you can measure constantly over time. And you can, you can, you can look at these like scholastic tests, like uh, math tests, reading tests and so on that they've been giving to kids kind of standardized since the, uh, the, uh, the early 1900s. And once they do this, they, they just get this like totally flat plot that just shows, yeah, it's the same, like whatever one standard deviation between the, the, the kids of the 90th centile and the kids of the 10th centile. I don't know if it's one standard deviation, but it's the same, it's the same gap. It's been a constant for like 70 years. And when you read this paper, you're like, this just like screams at being genetics. Like we've done an untold amount of like social engineering projects in the last you know, the last six decades or whatever. And essentially you have not managed to change anything, even with the income pattern, like whatever it is you're doing, you know, you would talk to Richard Hanania and he was like, he had this interesting post about uh, fake expertise. And he's like, yeah, we have more criminologists than ever. And actually crime rates are higher than they were in the 1950s. Clearly criminologists are not good at reducing crime. Like they're, whatever it is they're doing, they're not working, right? These are fake experts. Whatever solutions they come up with, they don't do anything. Um, and it's it's very similar with these uh, with the people who are studying education. The, their goal has been expressly to reduce social inequality or or in education stuff for a hundred years, and we've made zero progress despite spending you know infinite amount of money on it. It's it's time to give up. Right, this stuff doesn't work. And but I mean that conclusion, this like no hope or whatever. That's the. It's totally just politically unacceptable. You're never gonna get this accepted. Uh, so I mean, we're we're doomed. It's like a Sisyphus thing, right? We're 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 standing there trying the next social program. We're pushing it up the hill. It turns out you do a, a critical evaluation like five years later. It turns out well, those initial gains you saw on the test, well, they've all fizzled out now. We are unable to tell kids apart who were in the study who 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 did not receive, say, you know, preschooling or whatever extra preschooling. That's the one they're currently going for, right? They've been talking about preschooling for several decades. Uh, and one that's kind of popular now is that, okay, it's not, okay, we've mostly given up on preschooling. We've got, we're still going to cite the preschool project and say like, okay, maybe it doesn't prove, uh, it doesn't boost IQ like we said it would. And the Head Start doesn't boost IQ like we said it would. And, uh, but it definitely still helps because look at this PHEC study from the like, 1960s. 
that, mm. never, that never replicates. That's the one they keep doing. Like you have this, like James Heckman, where he's like, look at my thirtieth study on the pair preschool project. Lo and behold, this is this uh, <laughs> this cherry picked sample still shows results, and nothing else works. And then uh, they do these studies uh, where they like kids need to go longer in school, and um, so you can do these studies where. Well, um, of course, there's some kids who are the first generation to now have follow the new rule of schooling. So like some new kids have to take a, a year extra mandatory schooling or whatever. And there have been several reforms, for instance, in the UK, where uh, like they extended the schooling from, what was it, uh, six years to seven years and seven years to eight years and eight years to nine years and so on, the, the mandatory schooling. And so, of course, if, if schooling has these long-term effects that you claim, like, okay, one year extra schooling should give you some extra IQ or, or teach you better how to um, some, somehow make you a better person later in life. Okay, then what we should see is that when we look at, at, uh, at these cohorts, the people who were born just one year later, who had the one extra year of schooling, they should be living you know, a few months longer, right? If schooling is actually causal, length of schooling is causal for longevity, like they claim, then these kids should be living longer. And once you, you check the census data like uh, Gregory Clark did, like there's nothing there, right? They don't actually live longer. They don't have bigger wealth at death because you can, in the UK, they once people die after a certain amount of time, you can um, register with the, uh, what's it, the inheritance, uh, what do you call this? Uh, the things you you pass on, the inheritance. That thing apparently is public after some decades. And they, he, they download all this data and they like digitize these like old census, whatever things you can fill out. And they, so you can, you have these like massive cohorts where like millions of people and you can see if there was any very, very small difference between the kids who were uh, mandated to having six years and then seven years of schooling, if there was any difference you could see in the occupation status and in the income, the lifespan or whatever, you would have seen it. And it just wasn't there. And they looked at data from three different of these reforms. So it wasn't like we tried a reform in the 30s and we were kind of incompetent because we didn't know what we we're doing. So it didn't work. But then when we got much better in the 60s, it worked. That's not what the data show. Like they just show that it never worked. And in Denmark, we just had this big, big, big change because they were like every government, you know, I don't know it's how it's like in Romania, but usually it's like every 10 years, they're going to reform the uh, social, uh, not the uh, not the social, the public schools. They're saying like a new government is coming in. They were saying like, guys, we need to reform a public school. The public school sucks. Everybody will agree. Yeah, public school sucks. And then we're going to put down some committee. They're going to come up with the new rules. The rules invariably uh, result in uh, more teachers, more money for teachers, longer schooling. This is always what they want to do. And um, and so they, in Denmark, we did this where like we had this big reform. And after the reform, the teachers had to read all this and do some bunch of new paperwork. Not that the, the teachers were complaining about the paperwork, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but the kids also had to go a few hours more in school every week. So like more math, more whatever. And then uh, we have these like standardized tests that you can then take and then they did this, like, of course, since uh, they, the government itself, like, set down a, a committee to check whether this thing worked. And the government's own committee said, yeah, basically nothing works, right? This was just a waste of time. And then three years later, they came out with this report, of course, like a P-hacked one, where they were like, despite having 100,000 people, we've managed to find a PO5 value with some interaction. Yeah, this uh, forcing kids to stay in school longer had, like, a marginal effect of improving the, the the test scores of like but only for kids who were parents were poor or something like it's always going to be stuff like this and like if you sample size is 100,000 kids and the only thing you can find is a p-value that's po4 i know you're finding is fucking bullshit right because 
<laughs> if you, you you had essentially infinite power to find anything that was interesting, if the only thing you can find is like a p-value that's marginal, I know that you've been looking very hard at this data and this was the best you can come up with. And that means there's nothing there. This stuff is not going to replicate, right? We have this massive replication crisis. Every time they do this p-hack bullshit, it doesn't replicate next time. And if you, I don't know if you've been seeing these replication projects, but they have this like, okay, we, we picked like, okay, not exactly 100 representative studies, but we picked 100 semi-representative studies and we replicated all of them with three times large sample size and like 30% of them or whatever they replicated. And it like social psychology, the love child of the left, it was like 25%. Like this was all these like social priming stuff that we've been listening about for years. Oh, social priming, you know, stereotype threat. Yeah. Girls can't do math because they've one time been told that boys are better at math. Like this, yeah, like that's this what I said outrageously stupid. So, that's what I said. Yeah. All the stereotypes. Yeah, it's totally, it's totally fake, right? This stuff is not real. Um, there was this, uh, there's this like IQ researcher, Yelta Vickerts. Uh, he's a Dutch guy. He's a very cool guy, and um, he, he was doing a bunch of IQ stuff some years ago. Uh, uh, even like critical of like master IQs and stuff. But he's like a very rigorous person. And later he had this uh, student. Um, uh, uh, what's her name? Flora, uh, Paula Flora, or something. Some Dutch name. And uh, Vickerts was like, yeah, let's do a big pre-registered non-cheating study of uh, the stereotype threat for girls. And so we're like, we're going to, uh, we're going to get a bunch of high schools or gymnasiums, these, these things to, um, to take part in our study. They had like 2000 uh, people in the study and we're going to give them a big dose of like girls can't math or whatever uh, to the girls. And then we're going to give them a long math test and basically we're going to look at the results. And since it's so large, 2,000 people or whatever, it's pre-registered. You cannot cheat anything. The results are going to be published. Whatever it is you're going to do, there's no cheating here. And it was just a massive negative, right? There was nothing there. This was a complete waste of time. We've spent like two decades studying something that wasn't real. And I mean, this this thing happens over and over and over in social science. It's, that's why a lot of people like rightfully consider social science to be a very weak science at best. Because you just like decades of, upon decades of this like, yeah. Stuff that isn't true. It's, it's really funny. Like my my whole degree, because I studied diversity management, was essentially built on that one paper. You know, because it was everyone wanted like a causal thing. There was you, you were looking because there's a lot of fluff, but they were like, okay, we have the hard science. Here's the stereotype threat paper. This is how it works. That's right. So hard science. That's right. Yeah, it's, it was really funny. Yeah. Then Steel when I and Arizona, this, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's that's. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if I were an outside perspective, you're kind of like. You're kind of wondering, that's, that's kind of how I got into like, are these people idiots? I mean, have they never, have they not learned anything from the history of science? Like, you know, the Feynman quote is the, the most important person to not fool is yourself, right? Because you're the easiest person to fool. And so, I mean, the whole point of science is to set up like safeguards against essentially fooling yourself with confirmation bias or publication bias and all this other stuff. And these social psychologists or whatever, these are just the least competent scientist people I've heard of. Like they cannot, if you can only replicate 25% of the time, despite having, I don't know, infinite funding and uh, eight decades of doing work, you must be fucking stupid. And I mean, that is what the studies show. That, that is that is a nice stuff that we're, we're going to do a study. I'm, I'm, um, I planned the study is that you can get the GRE scores. It's like quasi IQ tests that you do to get into like higher, like get into master's programs or, or PhDs or whatever in the US. And so it's just kind of like an SAT just for uh, further ahead. And uh, you can get this, and also the SAT averages by by intended major, and so you can you can see that it it turns out stereotype physicists really are smart, and like the average, if you convert like the SATs or whatever the GREs to IQs for like physicists, they're like one thirtieth. I think these people are the top two percent, 
And uh, I know a lot of physicists and um, I mean, this is definitely true. Um, when I was in my, um, doing my own um, college and the way it works in Aarhus University is that uh, in Denmark, every major that is not extremely small will have its own bar. And so uh, college students can all drink because the drinking age is 16. And um, so basically all uh, majors will have their own bar. So you can go, there will be like a philosophy bar. This is the, run by the philosophy students. There'll be a physicist bar run by the physicist student, a chemistry bar and so on, bar by the religious thing. And the stereotype accuracy of this stuff is extremely high. Like if you go to the medicine bar, it's, it's all like girls in stilettos and very large, very loud shit music because that's the kind of woman medicine is mostly female right that's the kind of woman who go into medicine right it's extremely stereotypical and you only go over there to kind of try to pick up one of these and uh, if you want like people who are drunk and hang out and like play board games you go to like the philosopher bar like because what are the philosophy stereotypes these are like nerdy board game people it's mostly men and they like sitting around with the cheapest possible beer because these people are they don't have any money right because they're lazy and so that's why they're studying philosophy i also study philosophy so of course i, I know very well this this type of I'm no longer lazy. I disavow laziness. And <laughs> uh, anyway, but anyway, so basically I hang out with the philosophy people. They're just like, you just cannot, the philosophy people are not stupid, but they're just like, they're very non-quantitative. They're very much into these verbal arguments and they're trying to, de, to befuddle you or whatever, like trick you with some verbal argument. And after some time of studying logic and stuff, like I can no longer be, be tricked by you. You, know, you have no power here. Uh, with these uh, <laughs> with these verbal trick arguments, they don't work on me anymore. And um, uh, anyway, so but uh, what we're doing in the study is that um, we're going to do a stereotype accuracy study for majors. So we're going to ask a bunch of people like, which fields do you think are smarter? Like people who study whatever do you think they're smarter than the other people? And we're also going to have some different people rate like, so which sciences do you think are better? And I, I'm I will I will bet ten thousand dollars that these stereotypes will be very accurate. And what you're going to find is that um, is essentially that the more scientific a field is, the more like white and male and Asian it is. That's that's what you're going to find. And um, because if you just like use your own stereotypes, which are highly correlated with other people's stereotypes, they're mostly shared, right? What are the most reliable fields? It's like physics and chemistry and stuff, it's like mm -hmm. hard science stuff, math. These are like high IQ, highly male, or even like highly autistic, right? The autism, I think, is the most important thing about science. I think autism is really the thing that that protects you against a lot of these biases because autistic people are just like they're not corrupt and they're not usually ideological. They're uh, autistic people often have this like they have they're very principled or you know you can call people autistic in the sense of following principles too strongly or you can call them principled in the positive. It really depends if you agree or don't agree with their principles, right? So when you don't agree with the principles, you call them autistic. When you agree, you call them principles, right? And uh, But they're, they basically go into the science and they're like, yes, science is about finding truth. We have to do an informative study. We're going to publish the results no matter what they're doing. And that's that's kind of what you find when you do this, these like studies of, of uh, p-hacking. You can do this across scientific fields to some extent and what you find is like, what was the least p-hacked study? It was like space science or something. Like the most, what was the most p-hacked, I don't know, social psychology or sociology or something. These are people who can barely pass like first year statistics. And these are the people we're trusting, trusting to make science that we're basing social policy on. I mean, we must be fucking stupid. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, uh, I'm very negative about politicians and, and journalists and so on. And uh, journalists, I think are the, these are the least likable of these groups because, Journalists, they're like, you, you read like 
the Watch Pro, whatever, democracy dies in darkness or whatever. And the Guardian is like, yeah, we're going to protect democracy and like enlighten the public. But it turns out journalists are fucking stupid too. And like, how can you enlighten the public if you don't know anything, right? Journalists are like, hmm, how do I understand science? I'm going to read a press release. Yeah. That's that's how you get that's how you get science. So basically, you have this like HR journalist pipeline where like universities what we want attention in the media because this pushes up our university rankings because these university rankings are in part based on media attention to stuff that you publish. So you like any kind of catchy study that you have, the HR people are looking over your new study. So go like we're going to write up a very poor summary of the study, like all the stuff where where the study was based on you know parents and children, and we don't actually have a way to control the genetics. We're just going to ignore that, right? We're going to say parents that are uh, mothers that are less depressed have heavier children. You know, clear the headlines, right? That's that's but basically that's going to be the press release. We're going to shoot this out to the journalist. The journalist is going to write study rigorous study, largest ever by research at university of very good university, Princeton, Howard, whatever, or not Howard, uh, yeah. Scientists have determined that doctor, professor, you know, child psychology, he's like, yeah, we've learned for a long time that mother autism is very important for child, whatever. Like that's, that's like 90% of like this, this kind of studies. Uh, there was one interesting one. Uh, there's one of these exceptions to uh, open data sets was very interesting. Uh, it started, uh, I just published uh, yesterday and um I guess technically today, but uh, the 22nd, but this, this uh, study, uh, maybe you remember it from, I think, 2015 uh, by, uh, I think, a woman called Noble. And uh, she um, she used data from the, the Ping study. The Ping study is like a study of 1,400 American kids and youths. Uh, youth. And so age like three to 20 or so. So it's kind of awkward because you can't call them children because some of them are above 18 and you can't just call them adults so you kind of have this like youth anyway um so basically what you find in the studies that they have actual mri data too and so what noble et al did is that they measured the size of the brains and uh, or the cortical like some some aspects of brain and then they related this to parental like income and they were like poverty shrinks your brain poverty shrinks your brain and that's what the that's what the press release says and then they got like massive media attention and like this noble woman she got like a massive research for to do some follow-up research on this. Of course, there is no attempt to do any kind of, uh, you know, control for actual genetics. And we know there are some actual twin studies of like brain stuff and this stuff is extremely heritable, right? Like more than 90%, like the size of these brain regions, like whatever it is, you can, you can, you can, um, you can, you can change with your child, like the size of like these different brain parts. That's not the one you're kind of going for. Okay. Maybe you could shrink it by giving your, feeding your children like no food and, and lead poisoning or something but like there's nothing else you can essentially do uh to 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 do this uh, impact is but that's essentially what the study is like yeah poverty shrinks the brain that's like that's literally the headline of of um of the media but anyway the, the most interesting part of this study is that um uh, they actually controlled for genetic ancestry so they have a they have genotyped the kids uh, or, or youths and um They've estimated the ancestry in, in proportions, just like 23 me would do. So for each person, there's like this percent African, this percent European, this percent South Asian, East Asian, whatever. And um, and uh, strangely, the, very, the most strange part of the study is that for some reason, they attach the data to the table in the, in the journal. So they don't normally do this. And this journal doesn't say you have to do it. But for whatever reason, they decided to take most of the data set and attach it as an Excel file to the to the people like you uh, maybe 
maybe. Yeah, no, definitely not for people <laughs> like me. So, <laughs> but I don't know why they did this. But anyway, there were some people on Twitter who like DM me, hey, have you seen that they've attached this data set? And I'm like, no, I haven't, but I'm going to download it immediately. And then, of course, we, we downloaded this data set and we, um, we started analyzing it and we started thinking about uh, how to this do we should relate these um, these ancestry estimates to uh, actually they do have intelligence and they published that too in this data set. <laughs> they just gave you everything. Uh, it was like so, so. I really am uh, very thankful to Dr. Noble and her great study on the <laughs> uh, poverty shrinks the brain. That's not exactly the legacy of the study, but uh, anyway. So now we have this data set, um, and what you can do is that you can um, you can of course relate genetic ancestry to intelligence of the kids, and you can even control for parental uh, income or whatever, and you can see that the, the patterns are still there. So essentially, all these predictions that were made in the 70s, even the 60s, um, uh, Bill Shockley, he um, he actually, uh, do you know Bill Shockley was the um, inventor of, of the transistor, he's a Nobel Prize winner in physics, he's an extremely unpleasant autistic person from the 60s, and he was a Nobel Prize winner in physics. And then he heard about this like race and IQ stuff and eugenics and stuff. And he was like, yes, we need to study this now. He was just like being the most autistic about this because he was a member of the National Academy of Science. He like petitioned them to like fund a study into the like eugenics of black people or whatever. He was really based. Uh, and um, but he actually he was like trying to like he was actually saying, look, we should study uh, the eugenics of blacks because what's actually happening and uh, what you could see in the data back then is that the, the eugenics pattern was stronger for African-Americans. And so what you see is that uh, smarter people have fewer kids, but among African-Americans, this, this, this negative correlation is actually stronger. And so if you fast forward, what you're actually going to get is actually the genetic gap is going to become larger <laughs> or, or even come out of no, if there wasn't any gap to begin with, you will evolve it, right? Because your evolution is just differential here. And so he was calling attention to this and saying, look, we should study this. We should see if we could do something about it because we're breeding a, a genetic underclass. That's what, that's what he was saying. Like, and he was just like extremely hated, um, but in a, in a very obscure conference presentation from what was it, sixty six or sixty eight, he proposed that because he worked with like a metallurgy, like the different mixing of metals, and of, when you have this like metal, it's like mystery meat, mystery metal. You want to figure out what is it made of. There are certain methods to figure out what is the composition of this, and you could do this with the stars because of the the, uh, the spectrometer and this stuff. Anyway, you can also do this with metals, and he was like by analogy. If you measured enough, enough blood groups and stuff, you could do this for single persons too. And once you have these estimates, you can relate that to IQ. He wrote that in a half-page paper in like science in sixty in the late sixties. That's that's the first mention we can find of this admixture study analysis. Uh, of course, he didn't actually have any data. He just proposed the the method. Like this guy's a certifiable genius. And um, so, like Jensen was like, yes, this method, uh, this method should work. We should definitely try it. And there were some people who did this with blood groups in the in the mid seventies. It was a scar, uh, Sandra Scar uh, from the Scar Row effect, and she did this, and she was like, "Yeah, we can't find any association based on our sample size of one hundred seventy kids with some blood groups and stuff." As you can see, this, this study was very crude, and so being unable to find an association based on this old method that doesn't really say anything because even if the association is there, what's the chance of finding it? Like the power is unknowable because um, because the method is so crude. Anyway, but there was this was the first uh, attempt at this sort of thing. Um, there were some older studies where they looked at like skin color because we know that skin color in African Americans will relate to like your proportion of genetic ancestry. And uh, back then they didn't know exactly what the relationship was, but nowadays we know the correlation is 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6 somewhere in this area, uh, depending on who you're studying exactly. And um, 
And so there were these old studies showed that skin color is related to, uh, to intelligence in, um, in mixed populations. And, but of course, this is open to interpretation because you know, okay, skin color is, uh, you know, back then you had like literally segregation in the South and like black people in different schools and white people. So me, really finding an association with skin color is that just telling you indirectly that schools are bad for black people. It, it's not really causally informative. You can just see the association is there, but maybe it's caused by actual discrimination, which there was tons of back then, right? But so so it's it's open anyway. But we know the pattern was was definitely there based on the skin color, but we just don't know if it's still there in modern samples. And um, so, we, but we so we we finally got this um, this data set from the Noble, and we looked, and 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 this pattern is definitely there, and it's like very small p value. And so you, you just take predict IQ predicted from the the composition of these racial ancestries, and you can just see it's there. And there was uh, both uh, there in Hispanic uh, mixed Hispanic people and. Um, in the uh, the African Americans, okay, the sample sizes were quite small, like 120 African Americans. I mean, once you had this data set, it was uh, you know 1,400 people, um, not exactly representative. I think it was mostly recruited around Philadelphia or something. It was kind of like volunteer people to come into clinic, and I don't know exactly how they recruited people. Like, do you want to come into my clinic and volunteer MRI, and also we're going to measure your brain? And uh, I, I guess that's how they got. But so for of the 1,400 uh, kids, I think. So 120 of them were only African-Americans, not some other racial group by parental uh, or, or um, self-report. And, and there was maybe like 200 Hispanics or something. And, but it, it didn't really matter which way you analyze the data. It, it still showed this, this pattern was there. And um, so we've been sitting on that data since uh, 2015. That's when we, we got it because of the Nobel Prize. And we only published the study because we wanted to publish this in a, not just a Mankind Quarterly or whatever. We wanted a bit more attention. And by coincidence, there was this like... Um, MDPI, like this Swiss, it's technically a Swiss publisher, but really is a Chinese operation, I think. And um, they had this like new journal they wanted. And uh, by coincidence, one of our professor friends, he was like, they they sent like an invitation. Do you want to be the editor in chief? And he's like, ah, baby. And then they're like, we're, we're going to let you run your own special issue on any topic you want. And then he was like, mm, okay, I'm going to do it on race and intelligence. That's okay with you guys. Okay, it's okay with us. Like, and then like, ni hao, or whatever. And then, then you know, that was total fine. And uh, um, and uh, so we basically got this special issue on race intelligence. We invited like 150 academics or whatever to participate in this. And we got, um, I think we published uh, 20, 20, 30 papers somewhere in this in this area. And then it was shut down. Right? But we managed to get out the, a few of these genetic studies and there's some, some more supporting research uh, about like siblings and this sort of thing. And before it was shut down, of course, I mean, we know it's going to be shut down because what's going to happen is you're going to put out the first two studies and then the socialist is going to see it on Twitter and they're going to like start writing an email campaign to the publisher. Like you have these racist people there, blah, 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 mm -hmm. Nazis, eugenics, racism, blah, blah, mm -hmm. and it's a big, bad PR, right? Eventually, so uh, these Chinese uh, people who are, who are, these are the sub-editors, like, so they're basically... The people doing the menial work, uh, these are Chinese people. They don't give a fuck about this, these like PR campaigns or whatever. But it's essentially that there's some like European uh, directors or whatever, and those are the people they started emailing. And once the, you start emailing like these woke academics uh, that are sitting there in Switzerland, that's that's when they shut it down, and then they canceled the special issue. But they actually never. They we almost finished publishing most stuff there. They just um, they never de-published it, but they've hidden it from their website. If you go to the website and you check this journal and look for like published special issues, it's not there. It's it's hidden. But it, if you actually search for the actual papers, they're still there. So we haven't been de-published. They've just kind of hidden us uh, a little bit. 
Uh, but this 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 is a kind of this is the kind of thing you just have to get used to if you want to do study in this to this topic. Um, so to going back to like if you're like a data savvy person to you want to get into this topic, I mean, basically just reach out to me. I have tons of ideas. We've got, we've got a bunch of data sets that we've acquired in various ways, like like the people attaching it or some academic is giving it to us. And uh, there are many ways to, to to acquire these data sets. And once you got them, they can't really do anything about you having them since. Uh, getting one of these data sets is actually not illegal. It's not, you're not breaking any actual country law. You're maybe breaking some agreement with some data, uh, you know, data source. But uh, technically, it depends on who's, if you are giving the data, you're not breaking any rule. The person giving it to you is breaking the rule, mm-hmm. but it's not actually legally enforceable. What's, what's the punishment here? They're going to say, first off, they probably can't figure out who exactly gave you the data. And second, What's the punishment going to be? It's like, okay, you are not allowed to get this data in the future. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because the academics, they're, um, they're very fearful people. They're not really bold, right? Academics are basically cowards and uh, they're very low T, in other words, fuck boys. And um, <laughs> so for them, someone doing this sort of thing, it's, it's, it's out of their mind. They, they, they hadn't think of, they, they wouldn't really think someone would actually do this. And, but I mean, there's nothing really protecting you for preventing you from doing this i had this before some years ago you may remember there was someone who scraped okcupid and released that the the Mm -hmm. dating website right because a ton of stuff and that was also me right (laughs) and uh, because i was just like i was actually using okcupid and um, i was like this data set has just like so many great questions okay some of them are very stupid but it's like thousands upon thousands of people with these weird questions that social psychologists or whatever uh or social scientists would never dare answer you're never going to get ethics approval for studying these things right so like all these weird sex questions and what are you more into like boobs ass like chest or what was it like face did you have a bunch of questions like this and like uh do you like anal sex yeah totally i'm gonna ask my like psychology interest students to answer these things like that you're never gonna get that approved right um whatever all, all kinds of juicy stuff um in, in every sense of the word and it's just sitting there publicly all you really need is like make a profile and you can just start down on this data so I teamed up with some guy who was good with this and we just like started scraping this. And so we scraped, I don't know, 60,000 people or something data. And we just like released this data set because um, there were other people who scraped OkCupid and other dating sites, but they did the academic thing. They just kept all the data for themselves. They did a few like lame studies and no one went after them. There, there was even a study, if you read, I think Wired Magazine from 2014, there is, you can read this article, How a Mathematician Hacked OkCupid. And it's really about this like guy who can't get any dates and he's like, what if I just make many profiles and fill them out in different ways so I can match up with more women? Like, whoa, he really hacked the website, right? Yeah. Big genius confirmed here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he, he hacked it by lying on it to get dates that then went nowhere since obviously now he's not matched with people. I mean, this is this is the most dirt article ever. But um, anyway, so the, he was really the inspiration and no one ever complained about this, right? He wasn't, because he also scraped OkCupid, obviously, to, to look into this. He did some math on the, the dating and the clustering algorithm and then sort of thing. So basically he did the same thing we did. He just didn't publish data. And like Wired Magazine and other people were like, yeah, this guy is uh, smart and so on. So we did the basically much the same thing, but we were more altruistic. We shared the data so anyone else can also look. And we got like a worldwide like massive like PR hunt. Like we had like, I think researchers unethically share like blah, blah, blah. You know, even when you like, you sign up a profile on the website, it says, it says like in the user agreement, 
to consider all things you post to your public, right? <laughs> that's what like, it's not a direct quote, but that's basically what it said because they don't want legal liability and they know that anyone can fucking scrape this stuff and it has already been done. The, the OK Cupid data was, was in that Dataclism book as well, wasn't it? Like uh, there was, yes, some, it was. some based uh, results in terms of, uh, of uh, uh, racial attractiveness, I think. And, and yeah, how- it People would react how you know different different types of uh, you know matrices would react to each other, and it was it was quite uh, quite spicy. But I'll I'll leave that there. I think people can can look it up. It's uh, if you I think if you if you look type in dataclism racial whatever yeah. you'll see so, some. So that book actually censored most of this stuff, but they they have the block that you're referring to, the OK Trends block, and that one had all the juicy stuff. But actually, they've been like censoring and deleting it over time, so now you can't actually find it. But uh, it turns out that Gorn. He archived it. So for anyone looking to read this juicy OK Cupid stuff, you just go to the website of Gwern. That's uh, it's, a bit, it's like a, what is it? A fake Celtic name or something? G W E R N. And mm-hmm. just type Gwern OK Cupid or something. You're gonna find the entire archive and then go read the uh, what is it? Race and attractiveness. I think that's the article you're talking about. It, it shows like the inconvenient racial hierarchy that many our researchers later found. Yeah, yeah very interesting. Many, one. many incel blogs have been spun out of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that is extremely accurate. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, because we're coming up on time now, I want to ask you the question of the show: uh, Who is your subversive? Who would you recommend that people check out? Who's like super um, spicy? I guess. <laughs> I guess you have definitely a lot of spice people in your in your list, but who who should we read? Yeah, but uh, the way you phrased the question, let me you can see because it has to be like with like, a sort of unknown person. It's about a subversive thinker who you've learned a lot from, but is in way underrated and people should know about. So people should know about kind of implies that they don't really know about it. So I can't say Otto Jensen since he's so famous now. I don't really like Russian so much. Richard Lynn is also famous. So I thought hard about this and it's kind of difficult to come up with someone. Uh, so I thought of a not exactly obscure person, but one I, I like a lot. And it's, um, it's a Scott Lilienfeld, who uh, I think died last year. And he was a Jewish-American psychologist. He was very interested in um, in clinical psychology and pseudoscience and clinical psychology. As we were talking about uh, before, uh, like parenting guides and stuff, this stuff is basically based on total things that uh, that don't even have the, the weakest evidence behind it, right? <laughs> it's almost just made up. And uh, and he was very interested in, like, how do we get, how do we close the practitioner researcher gap? So basically what you find is that if you read research articles about what works with, like, say, uh, psychotherapy, you can get some good ideas because there are lots of randomized trials. And then you look at, we give a survey to what do actual psych- psychiatrists or, or psychotherapists do? They do something completely different than it is the research says works. Because there's, there's this huge gap between the people who work with stuff, like uh, like people who work with like troubled kids or something, and what the research actually said you should be doing. How, how do we go? How do we close this gap? So he's been writing a lot about this, uh, the, the, the how to bridge this gap and a lot of how like from an actual clinical perspective, telling pseudoscience from, from real science. And I thought this was very interesting. And he's also, later he wrote this uh, piece, I was uh, publishing, like, can, can psychology become a science? And he tells his own his own uh, tale is that he, he um, just to close it off, he he was a student of uh, David Lurken, who is a, a Scandinavian descent uh, twin researcher from Minnesota. And uh, so he just came kind of uh, out of normal psychology. And he was like, yeah, genetics is bullshit, intelligence is bullshit. He came to study under this guy, and he was like, uh, hmm, these things are, are a lot more true. So he was like, if I can be this misled, and he was reading a lot widely, he's a smart guy, and so on. He's, if I can be this misled, then is, is there any hope for psychology as a science? And he has this like retrospective article where he looks back, 
who's like, if I can be this misled, what other things are we misled about currently? And you have to talk about the problems in science, like you have all the, the replication crisis stuff. I mean, that is true, but you have the political stuff. That one is, is more destructive to a lot of the science. A lot of it is just due to uh, like uh, social science being stupid. Right? If they had 20 more IQ, we would be doing a lot better, but they don't. And um, But if you also have stupidity and then on top of it, we have a political bias where you have like, I don't know, 10 to 1 Republican, Democrat or whatever. And that's like a good ratio, 10% Republicans. That's like a very right-wing field. Right? <laughs> uh, so that, so I, I really recommend uh, this. He died, unfortunately, I think of cancer last year, but we've set up a website, Scott Lindenfeld.com or .net or something. If you just go Google Scott Lindenfeld website memorial, we've uploaded all his papers there, uh, a lot of his books. And so you can just like, read and run. That's, that's my subversive thinker uh, choice here. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you. I think I've, I've never heard of him. I'll check it out. I direct people to check it out. Um, and I also want to thank you for coming on. And I also want people to go. I think you have a YouTube channel. Uh, it's Emil yes. Kierkegaard, if you post that. Yep. Um, and also a Substack, you said. Is yeah, it, that's right. It's just Emil Kierkegaard at Substack.com. I think it's Kierkegaard Substack.com. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm actually I'm actually not sure if they're gonna ban me at some point, so I'm just cross posting to my normal blog and Substack. But yeah, we're, we're hoping to to build some uh, some revenue income on the Substack, and uh, I, nothing is private there. Like you can read anything you want without uh, paying. But I mean, I'm hoping to get some money that will help support this research um, going forward. Yeah, excellent, and it it is it is worthy research. You know, in the sense that you know we've been discussing this for what now an hour and a half now. This is this is very hard to do, um, and whatever whatever incremental improvement uh, you guys get to do is uh, is very worthy. So please do uh, subscribe and and donate to this because there's uh, there's quite a lot of um, low hanging fruit that still exists yeah, in, definitely. in this field. Cool. So thank you so much, Emil. Uh, it was great chatting to you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Nice, nice to have you here, or <laughs> nice to be here. <laughs> have the other way around. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible. So thank you.